if you've been with us for the last couple of months, we've been looking at the functional American gods. These are gods that don't often get called gods, but they're gods nonetheless. And what we've talked about in the course of this series is that a God is not just the thing that you call your God. A God is actually where you go for your identity, right? A God is where you tap the deepest meaning in your life. A God is what you can't live without, right? A God is what offers you your ultimate and deepest comfort and security in life. And we've been looking at a lot of these gods that often are actually really good gifts. They get all out of whack when we elevate them to the place of ultimate importance in our life. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about one of the most powerful American gods, one of the most controversial American gods, and a God that we all struggle with. That is the God of sex, the God of sex. Uh, I, I tried to hand my notes off to people in the hall to preach this sermon for me, and I didn't have any takers. So here we go. Um, Before we dive into this, I want to give you just a few resources that are particularly helpful. These are books that will serve you if you have more questions about sex and sexuality. And they were really helpful for me in addition to studying the Bible the last couple of weeks. These books served me well. Uh, let Let me mention them to you. We'll have these on our website. We've got a little online bookstore so that you can buy books that we would recommend for your journey. Uh, Here's a few books that are really good. Divine Sex by Jonathan Grant. Um, I did get some funny looks when I was reading that book in a coffee shop, but it's a great book. Divine Sex by Jonathan Grant. He does a great job of looking at cultural trends, things that are happening in culture and in society, and in showing how the gospel really does have power to bring freedom in our sexuality. Second book, which is one of my favorite books I've ever read, um, it's one of those rare books where it's got theological weight, but also poetry and soul and beauty. It's a memoir. It's a spiritual memoir written by a guy named Wesley Hill. It's called Washed and Waiting, Washed and Waiting, and it's It's about his struggle as being a gay Christian that wants to follow Jesus in his sexuality. It's about his life of celibacy and the pain and difficulty of following Jesus in his sexuality. And it's a great book. Whatever your struggles are sexually, that's a book that will serve you. And it's really well-written and really beautiful. And then the last book, which is the most helpful for today, and it would actually help our, our pastors a lot to help you if you all read it. So help us help you. It's a book called Mere Sexuality. Mere Sexuality by Todd Wilson. And it's just a great book that unpacks the simplicity and the beauty of a a theologically orthodox historic take on Christian sexuality. It's not heavy handed, it's charitable to opponents and it's really well written. So I recommend those three. Now, having said that, let's dive in and get to work together. Uh, In the 20th century, there was this German sociologist. I know you guys love German sociologists. They do love to party. Uh, There was a German sociologist named Max Weber. And Max Weber said that science had succeeded in disenchanting the universe. Science has succeeded in disenchanting the universe. Now, that's not all bad, right? Um, Scientific development is part of God's common grace. And we actually can have some human flourishing and thriving based on technological advances that help us shrink the world and love neighbors over oceans and advances in medicine are good. Can I get an amen? But the problem with that statement and the thing that's really interesting is if you listen to a pure materialist, right? Somebody that doesn't think that there's anything transcendent in this world. There's nothing spiritual behind the scenes. If you listen to a pure materialist talk about things like love 
or talk about things like beauty or talk about things like meaning and approach those things from a purely evolutionary point of view, there's just something about it that doesn't sit with our own experience of life or with eons of ancient wisdom. There's something missing in that disenchanted view of humanity. And I mentioned that, I mentioned that because I found it really strange as I've been studying to teach on sex and sexuality that I keep coming back to C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. And I know that's a little weird, but hear me out. The thing I keep coming back to with Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia was the way that he wrote about the enchantment of Narnia, the way he wrote about the deep magic of Narnia. And I think it's relevant to today's discussion because Sex is deeply powerful. There's something almost magical about sex and sexuality. There's something mysterious about sex. There's power in sex that literally can create life. It's amazing. We should just pause and think about that for a second. There's power in sex to create life. There's power in sex to take two lives and merge those lives together in really profound ways. And that magic in sex, that power in sex can also be really dark magic. We could have hundreds of people in our church tell their stories of sexual addiction and sexual compulsion and sexual brokenness. And we would see that sometimes the magic attached to sex and sexuality is as dark as any evil witch in a fantasy universe could come up with. I read this or I say this because as we talk about our culture and this God of sex, the thing that's fascinating is that we live in a world where we say simultaneously out of one side of our mouth, sex is nothing. And out of the other side of our mouth in our culture, we say sex is everything. So we say sex is nothing. We live in a disenchanted world. Sex is just mere biology to us culturally. There's no mystery in sex. There's no power in sex. There's nothing spiritual in sex. Uh, we hear it all the time. As long as it's consensual, who cares? There's nothing really deep or of substance that happens in the midst of intercourse. Sex in our culture is different from going to the bathroom or eating because you're hungry in only slight degrees. We live in a disenchanted world. Feminist writer Naomi Wolf wrote a little bit about a conversation she had with a college student and the college student was unpacking his philosophy of sex. And basically what he was saying was he likes to get sex out of the way on the first or second date to relieve the tension so that he can then start to get to know the person that he's dating. And her question to that was, well, doesn't that remove some of the mystery of sex? And his answer was telling. He pulled his answer out of the disenchanted air that we breathe. He said, sex has no mystery. There's nothing spiritual about it. There's nothing deeper than just the exchange of bodily fluids. So in our culture, sex is nothing. It's just sex. But at the same time, there is magic in sex. There's something powerful and mysterious about our sexuality. And in the midst of the magic of sex, we actually say that not only is sex nothing, but sex is also everything. It's not important, but it's the most important. Sex in our culture is probably the primary, the primary occupant of our collective imagination, right? Cultures and individuals have imagination and sex controls the imagination of America. It's central to almost all of our marketing, right? Like you can't buy coffee without being sold sex in our culture. 
Sex is central to our art and to our poetry. Um, it's fascinating how many great shows, like the really good shows on Netflix that have great plot lines and good character development. It's amazing how almost every one of those shows puts a salacious sex scene in episode one or two that has nothing to do with the plot whatsoever, just because they know that our culture is controlled by a collective imagination that's rooted in sex. Sex in our culture is probably unanimously the option for pursuing sexual fulfillment or personal fulfillment itself. So in our culture, uh, sex is nothing, but also sex is the path if you're gonna actualize your life, if you're gonna live a deep life, a significant life, a powerful life. Our culture might even be the first in history, and, and I don't throw those words away very often. Uh, I'm not one of those guys that likes to talk about how this is the worst moment in the history of the world. I'm not a historian, but I've read enough history to know that the world's always been kind of flipping nuts, right? Uh, but we're probably, we're probably the first culture in the history of the world to allow our sexual desires to define our identity as human beings. And so sex in our culture, on one hand, it's kind of nothing. On the other hand, it's kind of everything. It's kind of everything. And what I want you to see is that as with all of these American gods we've looked at, it's not that they're in themselves bad things. It's that they become really enslaving and oppressive and destructive when they become ultimate things. And the most powerful gifts that God gives us have the most power in our twisted hearts and minds to become the gods that we worship. And sex is one of the most powerful, magical things that God ever gave humanity. The gift of sex and sexuality was and is connected to the essence of imaging the beauty and the glory of God. So here's what we're gonna do today with our time. Uh, I wanna take just a couple of minutes and I wanna give you a bit of the biblical vision for sex and sexuality. We need a biblical vision for sex and sexuality. If you're a young person and you think that the Bible's only vision for sex and sexuality is a list of things that you're not supposed to do, you do not have a biblical vision for sex and sexuality, right? There actually is a why behind God's restrictions of sex to the covenant of marriage. There's a why behind it. And the why behind it is fueled by a really big and beautiful vision. Then what we're gonna do, and it's gonna be a little dicey. I'm aware that I'm on thin ice in this conversation, but what we're gonna try to do is just have a conversation about the sexuality of Jesus. Have you ever thought about the sexuality of Jesus? Have you ever thought about just the scandal of Jesus having a Y chromosome or Jesus reigning today on the throne of heaven and having a penis? Like that's weird to me. That's crazy to me. So we're gonna talk about God's vision for sex and the sexuality of Jesus. And we're gonna land with the hope of the gospel that can actually meet us in our sexual brokenness, in our compulsions. And we're gonna look at how Jesus confronts the God of sex by actually subordinating sex to its rightful role and elevating Jesus to his rightful role. So here we go. Uh, in the beginning, this is all from Genesis 1 through 3, God's vision for sex. Uh, I'm not saying that this includes all of it, but here's the main things. Four things. One, sex tells us something about God. Sex tells us something about God. We see in Genesis that God created man and woman in his image. So male in his image and female in his image. 
There's something about femininity that reflects the glory and the beauty of God. There's something about masculinity that reflects the glory and the beauty of God. That's individually, but we also see that in that sexual urge to be unified with that which is quote unquote other, right? The man's yearning for the otherness of woman and the woman's yearning for the otherness of man in that unification that happens in intercourse, which God describes as becoming one flesh. God's actually telling us something profound about him. It's a parable about God. And the parable about God is that two people that are whole coming together in the bond of marriage and having that sexual union make them one flesh is pointing to the oneness and the threeness of God. That God is one God, yet God has eternally existed in three persons. That coming together is pointing to a mystery, that relationship, that intimacy, that depth, that delight, that God intended to be there in the sexual union is pointing to, it's a picture of, it's a metaphor for the kind of God that we actually worship and wanna follow. Secondly, um, sex doesn't just tell us about God, but it tells us something about us in relationship to God. That yearning for other and the ecstasy of sex, right? The, The fulfillment that happens in sex, The delight of sex, the beauty of sex is actually pointing towards the ultimate union with other that happens in the relationship that God intends for his people to have with him. Now, we're not getting into some weird bridal mysticism. I'm not saying that God has sexual desire for his people and his people should have sexual desire for God. I'm saying that sex is telling us something mysteriously and almost mystically about the ultimate ecstasy that God intends you to have with the ultimate one that is the most other. Union with God and connection with God and delight in God that the Bible is unapologetically uh, unafraid to call ecstasy. It's beauty, it's delight. Um, Thirdly, God's vision for sex is God inviting his creatures And not all of his creatures, but his creatures that are in his image, his creatures that are human creatures to actually share with him in the creation of immortal life. And I just want to pause for just a second here because this is lost on us culturally. Um, Our sexual revolution has almost completely divorced sex from procreation sex from procreation. And I'm not at all saying that the only purpose for sex is procreation. I'm not at at any point in this sermon going to try to unpack ethics of birth control and philosophy of birth control. I'm just going to say at the very heart of sex is being unified in the beginning to be fruitful and multiply. It's a way in which God wanted to share the delight of creating with his creation. And that's beautiful and it's deep and it's holy. And then fourthly, God's vision for sex is about reminding us of just how important our bodies actually are. Just how important our bodies actually are. Some of the worst heresies in the history of the church, heresies that have destroyed lives and really messed up the people of God have been connected to this divorcing of body and spirit. And what God wants us to see is that though we share similarities with mammals that procreate like we do, There's something really different in the procreation that happens between human beings. And the thing that makes it so profoundly different 
is that human beings are the only things that God has ever created that are in souled bodies and embodied souls, right? Like there are similarities in the way that we breed and chimpanzees breed, but the gap between us is a million miles because you and I are immortal image bearers of God that are body and soul. And your body matters to God and your soul matters to God. Both are important. So let let me read this to try to sum this up. I want you to hear every word of this. It's so important. Sex points to God in its unitive, right? It's it's unitive. It's, it's, It's a merging power between a man and a woman. Sex points to God in its unitive and in its procreative power. And God's clear, clear and consistent command that sex be limited to the boundary of the exclusive and permanent covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is not rooted in puritanical fear of sex. It's not rooted in being grossed out by sex or being grossed out by, by biology. It's not rooted in bigotry. God's consistent, pervasive limitation of sexual intercourse into the bounds of permanent and exclusive marriage between a man and a woman is there because there's a deeper understanding of just how powerful sex is. The magic of sex. Wendell Berry, the essayist, he said, sex was never safe and it is less safe now than ever before. See, Though we can, through modern medicine, we can limit unwanted pregnancies and we can limit the transmission of sexually transmitted diseases. The reality is sex is inherently powerful and it's inherently powerful in a way that fire is inherently powerful. Fire has the power to bring warmth, to bring life, to help bring nutrition to bodies. And yet fire can burn down entire civilizations. It can scorch forests. It can leave scars. And God's injunctions against sex out of the covenant of marriage are not based on being grossed out by sex or bigotry against people. God's limitations of sexual expression to the covenant of marriage are rooted and grounded in knowing just how powerful this gift really is. I'm not a huge Disney fan. I was really happy when my kids outgrew princess movies. I'll admit that. Um, But this week, as I was preparing to walk us through this, I rewatched The Sorcerer's Apprentice in the film Fantasia. And and if you're familiar with The Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know that there's the plot behind it of this young, inexperienced, uninitiated young apprentice trying to take the power of the master, the master sorcerer, the master magician, and use that power for his own ends without the proper experience, boundaries, and parameters of that power. And it goes well for a minute. (laughs) At the end of that story, what happens is chaos breaks out. God's sexual vision is not a vision of limiting life or restricting life or stealing life. God's sexual vision is about preserving life. It's about standing against chaos. And what's happened in our cultural moment and what's happened throughout history is we've taken the gift of sex. We've rejected, if not tried to kill the giver of the gift. 
and we've tried to use it on our own terms to find our own fulfillment. And I just want us to pause for a minute and ask, has our sexual experiment succeeded? Are our lives deeper because of what we've done with sex? Is there more joy? Is there more union? Is there more faith, hope, and love? Is there more delight that's lasting delight? Or has our sexual experiment led to chaos? We live in a moment where the world is full of sexual consumers. We've taken sexuality and we've taken capitalism and we've merged those things together. And now sex is just another product. It's just another good. And the result of that is not just the trillion dollar porn industry. The the result of that is the way that we objectify people. The way that we live in a culture, we live in a swipe right, swipe left culture. We're willing to reduce people to nothing more than the sexual fulfillment we can get from them momentarily. We're willing to buy into the lie that things like cohabitation lead to uh, a trial marriage that's gonna be better for us, even though all the stats say the opposite of that. We live in a moment where women are objectified. We live in a moment where there are more kids born without moms and dads than ever in the history of the West. We live in a moment where there's just brokenness everywhere. I know that this is really difficult to talk about, but we live in a moment where we're not just sexual consumers, but we live in a moment where we're sexual prey. As a pastor and as a dad, I don't know what to do with one in four women being victims of sexual abuse. Violence. I don't know what to do with that. Statistically, one in six men are victims of sexual abuse and violence. Probably much higher men are far less likely to report sexual abuse. Man, our guts are hanging out in this room. There's baggage, guilt is a feeling of unworthiness because of what we've done. We have that in this room. We've committed sexual sin. We've reduced people to objects. I've struggled on and off since I was a little kid with the temptation towards pornography. I'm not the only one. Guilt is rooted in the things that we've done that were wrong and we carry that guilt. Shame is different. Shame is not regret for things that we've done. It's a sense of unworthiness because of who we are. Shame is often rooted in the sins, not that we've committed, but the sins that have been committed against us. And there's a lot of shame in this room. There's a lot of dads that were supposed to protect and didn't. There's a lot of exposure to pornography at an early age in this room. There's a lot of sexual abuse that's happened in this room. There's a lot of sexual violence that's been done against people in this room. I'm not saying all that to try to be salacious or dramatic. I'm saying that because the God of sex, that's one of the primary gods of our culture, he demands heinous sacrifices in his worship. He demands the sacrifice of bodies, 
the sacrifice of women, the sacrifice of children. The God of sex is a terrible God. He's a terrible God. And the beauty of Jesus is that with all of these gods that tell beautiful lies, that promise freedom and give bondage, the beauty of Jesus is that he confronts these gods to actually set us free, to to liberate captives. Jesus came to confront gods that aren't God and he came to set us free from the bondage that those gods gave us. And he came to actually confront the God of sex. Not because sex itself is dirty, sex is a gift, but because sin has marred sex into being something God never intended it to be. And the way that Jesus confronts the God of sex is a bit shocking. Jesus confronts the God of sex, not just with talks and sermons and words, although he does that. Jesus confronts the God of sex in his very sexuality, in the sexuality that Jesus takes on in the incarnation. I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter two, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's us. That's us. We share in flesh and blood. We're we're biological beings as well, well as spiritual beings. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is the son of God, the eternal word. He himself partook of the same things, flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This paragraph is one of the most beautiful, mysterious, rich paragraphs in all of the Bible. This paragraph is pointing us to the power of the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what it means is Jesus, not just, not just from the safety of heaven, but from the grit and grime of the incarnation, wants to do something to set us free from the false god of sex. Let me give you three or four things about the sexuality of Jesus. Number one, Jesus in the incarnation affirms the goodness, the goodness of being male or female. Jesus affirms the goodness of being male or female. Let me read to you from Mere Sexuality, just a brief section. Jesus became like us, not only in our humanity, but also in our sexuality. That is, his body is a biologically sexed body like ours. The word became flesh. But more than that, he took on sexual difference, gender, hormones, and all the rest. God the Son Son became human, not in some abstract or general way, but in a very specific embodied way as a particular male human being. Here's the scandal of the incarnation. It's the greatest mystery of the Christian faith. The eternal son of God 
equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit, in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, has a Y chromosome, went through puberty, has a penis, grew facial hair, had to deal with hormones, had to navigate the awkwardness of being 12 years old. This is a mystery. Now, you may be thinking if you're a misogynist or if you've seen the misogyny that's tragically marked poor teaching of the Bible, you may be thinking, oh, well, what about women? Is that just another way that men get the edge? The son of God gets a Y chromosome. No, no, no. In the incarnation, Jesus affirms the beauty of, of being male and being female. Listen to this. What about the other half of the equation, woman? Does the incarnation speak to her? Yes, it does. By embracing human nature, God the Son embraced the virgin's womb. The second person of the Trinity swam in amniotic fluid, fed from an umbilical cord, traveled a vaginal canal, and fed at his mother's breast. Pause to consider the significance of that or ponder these words. Through the umbilical cord, he is this particular man, the son of this particular woman, the bearer of the whole previous genetic history of her people and the recipient of innumerable hereditary features. The point is this, through the incarnation, God the Son embraced male and female sexuality to its core. He didn't sidestep human sexuality, rather he embraced it fully. In the incarnation, Jesus is telling us something about our sexuality. He's saying that it's good that there's sexual differentiation. It's good that there's sexual interdependence between men and women. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12 tells us, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man from woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. Here's what it's saying, and it's revolutionary in our cultural moment. In the incarnation of Jesus, we see that Christ sees your biology as a holy vocation or calling. You're either male and called to be male for the glory of God, or you're female and called to be female to the glory of God, male to the glory of God and for the good of others, female to the glory of God and the good of others. Jesus affirms the goodness of being male and female. In addition, secondly, Jesus denies the necessity of sexual activity for a good life. He doesn't deny the goodness of sex. He denies the necessity of sexual activity to live a good and rich life. Jesus lived the richest life of any human being that's ever lived. Even people that don't love and follow Jesus as God have to admit that he has marked the totality of human history since 2000 years ago, and he's marked it profoundly. He's the most significant historical figure in the history of the world. And Jesus, who lived that rich and deep life, died a virgin at 33 years old. Scripture tells us that he was tempted in all the ways we are. Jesus had to deal with the biological realities of erections and hormones. But scripture tells us that he was tempted in all the ways that we are, but he did it without sin. Jesus never indulged a lustful thought about a woman. Jesus never engaged 
in a sexual touch. Jesus never allowed sexual temptation to master him. And some of you have this weird view of Jesus that's more Gnostic than it is Christian, where Jesus just kind of appeared to be a human being, but he just really overpowered all that with his godness. Jesus, 100% God, but 100% man. Meaning it's really breathtaking that he went through that and endured that, and it certainly wasn't easy. C.S. Lewis nailed it. He wrote this, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus lived a beautiful life, a rich life, a joy-filled life. And his life refutes the cultural narrative that the only way to experience depth and fulfillment and identity is through sexual activity. Now, it's easy to mistakenly think that his life must have been dull or really lonely, right? But the truth is so much different than that. Jesus had the deepest same-sex friendships of any human being that's ever lived. Jesus had brothers that he did life with, that he shared his heart and his soul with. He had companions. Jesus had friends, and he stuck to them closer than any brother. Jesus had the deepest opposite sex friendships of any human being that's ever lived. He delighted in the femininity of his female friends, friends like Mary and Martha, who he loved. More than any of those relationships, Jesus had a depth of fellowship with his father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not a sad, dull, boring, lonely person. Jesus was the most fully alive person that's ever lived. My point in starting with those two things, that Jesus actually affirms the beauty and the goodness of being either male or female, and Jesus denies the necessity of sexual activity. My point in starting there is that that is the opposite of our cultural narrative. Our culture affirms the opposite. Our culture says your biological sex is irrelevant and subject to personal subjective reality and desire. It says it's fluid and non-essential to your identity. Well, on the other hand, our culture preaches the message that sexual activity is at the core of what it means to be human and essential to flourishing. And Jesus dismantles both of those by his very existence, by his own sexuality and embracing manhood and womanhood and also being willing to live the single life that he lived and remain celibate for 33 years and die a virgin. Now, that's not where the good news of the gospel ends. That's where it starts. Where the good news of the gospel ends for your brokenness and mine, your sexual compulsions and mine, your sexual bents and mine, your shame and mine, your guilt and mine, where the gospel ends is that Jesus walks with his people towards wholeness. He walks with his people towards wholeness. And that text that we read, Hebrews 2, two times, two times, the point is made that he present tense helps those that are his, two times. How does Jesus help us? Well, let me, let me land it like this. Three things that Jesus offers you in your sexuality. One, he offers you his very life. He offers you his very life. Jesus was perfect in his obedience. 
He was sexually whole and sexually complete in his obedience. Jesus is strangely the simultaneous perfection of the calling of singleness. He stamps singleness with value and dignity, living his earthly life as a single man. And Jesus also values and holds up the beauty of marriage as being the bridegroom of the church. At the same time, he's the perfection of marriage and singleness, and he did it without sin. There was a day where Jesus met a woman and this woman had been culturally marginalized in every way a person could be marginalized. She was poor. She was a Samaritan who were looked down on by the Jews. And she was a woman in a patriarchal misogynistic culture. This woman was profoundly sexually broken. She had had multiple sexual relationships. She had had a whole rap sheet of sexual experiences. And at the point that Jesus meets her, she's literally trading sex for rent. And Jesus is the one man who ever looked at her and saw her as a human being. And instead of taking advantage of her or objectifying her or shunning her or pushing her away, Jesus stands there in perfect obedience to the Father and relates to her as a human being in purity, in mercy, and in love. Jesus lived a life that we can't live. You and I have not lived this life. There's not two kinds of people in our church today. There's not the sexually bent people and the sexually perfect people. There's just not. And and if you think that you're sexually perfect and without sin, you need to read the very words of Jesus. who said, hey man, even if you lust for a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. We're messed up. I'm messed up. You're messed up. But Jesus lived the life of perfect obedience in our place so that secondly, he could offer not just his life, but that he might offer us his death. And he offers us his death in in two ways for our sexual brokenness. He offers us his death for our sins and he offers us his death for our shame. This text tells us that he became the propitiation for our sins. That's a weird word. We don't use that word a lot. It means the atoning sacrifice that makes us favorable to God. Meaning all of our lust got counted as Jesus's lust. Our infidelity as Jesus's infidelity. Our crimes as Jesus's crimes. And on the cross, he was crushed in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin so that through faith, you could believe in Jesus and be a recipient of the great grace of God where Jesus's track record gets counted as yours and your track record gets counted as Jesus's. What this means profoundly is that in Jesus, there is no scarlet letter for anybody. Hey, look at me. Jesus wore your scarlet letter And he wore it publicly. He wore it in front of his mother, naked. Whatever you've done wrong that causes such profound guilt and regret, Jesus atoned for that. He paid for that. And if you were to stand before the Father today, if your faith is in Jesus, the Father doesn't have a rap sheet of yours that he wants to confront you about. Jesus bore your rap sheet. It's good news. But he doesn't just give us his death for our sins. He gives us our death for our shame. 
Because it's not just that we sin, it's that we live in a world where people sin against us. I don't want to overshare. Frankly, I don't want to have this conversation three times in one day. But I went through pretty profound abuse as a kid, sexual abuse. And uh, man, I've carried with me a deep sense of shame my whole life. God, by his grace and my relationship with Jesus and counseling and brotherhood and sisterhood, God's given me a lot of freedom from that shame. But I still have times where it's not that I regret things I've done or choices I've made. I just have a sense of just my own unworthiness as a human being. Here's what you got to know if your story might be like that story. Jesus's death is not just sufficient to deal with the sins you've committed. Jesus's death is sufficient to cover your shame. Jesus is patient. Jesus offers mercy. Jesus offers love. Jesus wants to walk with you in the process of recovery. Jesus wants to meet you as you go through a lifetime sometimes of healing from the trauma of sexual sins that have been committed against you. Jesus is not embarrassed by you. Jesus is not impatiently pacing for you to get your act together. Jesus wants to cover your sins and Jesus wants to cover your shame. And this leads us to the last idea. Jesus offers you his life. He offers you his death, but he also offers you his resurrection. I mentioned that twice in this text, it says that he helps present tense. He helps. Why does he offer that help? Well, he offers that help because you don't meet Jesus and then become asexual. You don't meet Jesus and have all of your sexual history automatically erased. You don't meet Jesus and have all of your sinful habits instantly removed. You meet Jesus and you're still a hot mess. You meet Jesus and you still have disordered desires. You meet Jesus and you still have habits. You meet Jesus and there's still things in your life that are out of order. And what Jesus wants to do over a lifetime through his resurrection is offer you the help that he might walk with you towards sexual wholeness. Sometimes walking with Jesus towards sexual wholeness feels like limping or crawling with Jesus towards sexual wholeness. But nonetheless, he offers help to his people. It's help that helps reorder desires. And I want to be really honest. Sometimes the help that he offers comes in miraculous moments of profound change. There's stories in our church of people that had all kinds of sexual compulsions, sexual histories that brought shame. And man, in a moment, Jesus did deep healing work. And we love it when he does that. That's a miracle. There's also people in our church that have been dealing with things, desires, feelings, longings that they wanted to lay down for decades that they still carry. And it's slow. The guarantee of Jesus is that he walks with his people in his resurrection power over a lifetime and he finishes that work when you see him face to face. The apostle Paul wrote these words to Christians that were sexually messed up like Christians are today. First Corinthians chapter six, listen to these words in closing. Flee from sexual immorality. 
flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or her own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. For some, that sounds like the most restrictive thing you've ever heard. Because to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus over all of your life. His lordship over your time, your money, your desires, your affections, your genitals, your intimacy, your bedroom. And the lordship of Jesus, for some, it's like, man, I don't want to be bought. I don't want to be all in. For others who know what it means, being bought with a price is the greatest news in the whole world because it means that you belong to him. He's paid for you. The totality of your life is his and he's invested his very blood in the project of transforming you into the image of God. And it's the best news in the world. Like one of the old catechisms says, what's our hope in life and in death? The answer that we are not our own. That's good news because we've been really crappy gods of ourselves. And Jesus, as Lord of your life and Lord of your body, wants to walk with you towards greater freedom and greater wholeness so that the God of sex that demands terrible sacrifices can be dethroned. As we close this today, I want to pray for you. For some, today is the beginning of a lot of conversations you need to have. And I would just tell you that though our cultural narrative is that sex is totally private, the reality is in the church, sex is not just a private thing. Now that doesn't mean that Christians have the right to be gossips or busybodies, but you're not gonna grow in wholeness in isolation. Jesus needed his friendships with men and women and he needed his relationship with his father to walk in the wholeness that he walks in. We need the same thing if we're going to grow in wholeness, if we're going to receive the grace of God, flee sexual immorality.